Well, Jesus, uh, his first recorded words according to the Gospels are not a parable. Right? If you go look at Jesus' first recorded words, his earliest words, not a parable, nor are they a list of beatitude blessings. So you're like, ah, oh, no, he said blessed so-and-so. And that, nope, that's not the first words. It's not a commendation of ancient laws. He doesn't say do this and don't do that. No, Jesus' first words that are recorded in the Gospels are simply this. Why were you searching for me? <laughs> that's his words. 12-year-old Jesus did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Or an alternate reading there would be, be about my father's interest. That's what Jesus is recorded as saying as a, as a young person. It's recorded in Luke chapter 2, verse 49. And they're offered by this young Jesus whose parents have been anxiously searching for him. The text says anxiously there. Have you ever lost your kids? Anybody here ever lost kids? Maybe you lost a youth group. We lost a youth group member one time in Philadelphia. I mean, lost, lost. The weird thing was she was the tallest person on our team. We still lost her. We didn't know where she went. She was finally found. T ten years later. No. <laughs> no, ten minutes later. Ten minutes later. Yeah. No, we lost her. We lost her. In fact, I was in the car parking the, the van when I got the call from my youth volunteers that said, hey, Jimmy, we, got, we lost a student. Man, I was sweating. Man, I was sweating. But Jesus was lost. His parents couldn't find him. Well, he wasn't lost. His parents had lost him. They're searching for three days looking for him. They must have been sweating. And when they finally spot him in the temple, what's the young man up to? What's this young Jesus doing at the time? Well, we read this. It says he was sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. And though the gospel writer observes the response of the, those with whom Jesus is gathered as amazed at his understanding and his answers, the response of Jesus' parents is quite different. It sounds like this. They did not understand what he said to them. They did not understand what he said to them. Of course, they're not alone in this, which is very clear by the way the gospel narrative unfolds in Luke's gospel, the way it plays out. But it's also the same for us in our own day. We oftentimes find ourselves with our own bouts of mishearing Jesus, misreading him, and even misunderstanding what Jesus is about, let alone what Jesus was about in the first century, but what Jesus is about in the 21st century. So we're not surprised to find a fellow in our own gospel reading this morning, like Cleopas and his traveling companion, not knowing what to make of the crucified Jesus, let alone all the rumors that this Jesus might actually be alive. Even when that same Jesus, I quote a song here, walks with them and talks with them. Anybody come to the garden alone? All right, we've got a couple of garden alone people here, right? Now you're not going to be able to hear the rest of the sermon because you'll be singing that in your head. Their dullness on this point is said to correspond to what is described in the text as their eyes were kept from recognizing him. We see that in verse 16. And though this concealment motif isn't unique to today's reading of Luke's gospel, it does show up in chapter 9 and also in chapter 18, it still strikes me as a bit odd, really odd, that these two do not recognize the resurrected Jesus as he walks and talks with them, even as he's present to them and with them. And I'm more than a bit curious as to what's the mechanism here that's keeping them, or at least is affecting their perception. I heard a, po a podcaster this past week recount having once heard a sermon where the minister suggested these two could not recognize Jesus because the sun 
was in their eyes. For seven miles? <laughs> Do you ever think to block your eyes <laughs> at all? That seems a bit of a stretch, right? That's a bit of a stretch. Though it, it may have functioned to set up the conclusion that the minister had of how when Jesus breaks the bread, now the S-O-N son is in their eyes. Uh, I'm sure that was the response of that congregation too. I'm not, I'm not sure the low-hanging son is the mechanism here. What seems more plausible to me is that these two travelers have conditioned bias that prevents them from being able to perceive that the living being who is now traveling with them is the once dead Jesus. The reason I say that and related to this possibility was found in an article that I read this past week entitled, Reality is Constructed by Your Brain. Here's what that means and why it matters. It's a fascinating article that includes a number of different thought experiments that you can do on yourself to prove the point. I'll actually post this article out uh, later this afternoon so that you can see it yourself and have fun playing with the different graphics on there. But in the article, Patrick Cavanaugh, a neuroscientist and research professor at Dartmouth and a senior fellow at Glendon College in Canada, is quoted saying, it's really important to understand we're not seeing reality. We're seeing a story that's being created for us. And being created for us Bias, we can certainly add to that. Psychologist Emily Balsitis, who is also quoted, puts it this way, we have this naive realism that the way we see the world is the way that it really is. The article's author will go on to note, naive realism is the feeling that our perception of the world reflects the truth. So these travelers, in this case, aren't ex expecting to see a dead man alive. Life has taught them that much. No one's expecting to see that, let alone a man that they most assuredly saw die, or if they didn't see him die, they most certainly saw his suffering at some point, and nobody gets up and walks away from that. And they don't appear to have any categories for the suffering and death of a messianic figure. You'll note that in verse 21 when they say, but we had hoped, right? They don't have the categories that their Messiah would actually suffer. The story they imagine and the truth they now hold is not the same as the narrative that is taking shape before them. And so they don't come to those as natural conclusions that this would even possibly be Jesus. No, they had a different set of expectations for who Jesus is and how he would do it. And Jesus hears that. And I think that's part of the power of Easter. Is Jesus hears our misunderstanding, our misconceptions of the whole thing. In fact, the text tells us Jesus not only hears this, but reacts strongly in verse 25. And that might seem overly harsh. We hear this strong Jesus speaking strongly, strong words at them. Did I say strong enough times in that sense? Was that, is that okay? Especially with the possible limitations that we've already identified, it seems Jesus is going over the top here. Why is he so harsh on them? Why does he rebuke them? But this rebuke isn't rooted in nothing. It's not coming out of nowhere. Jesus isn't just simply yelling at people to yell at them. Uh, he's not looking to hurt people or destroy uh, their, their personhood. But rather, he's going right at their own emotion. We had hoped. And he's coming with a strong sense here that it's time for full disclosure. It's time for you to have a better story here. Amidst the bias misshaping their present experience, 
Jesus is essentially saying here, let's get real for a moment. Let's get real. Let's take off the bias lenses. And so he tees them up for a new hope. Not Star Wars, if you went episode four there. Calm down. But a better hope. Wants to set them up for a better hope. And here's what real looks like. You may have hoped for one thing or another. But the reality is that what has happened was declared long ago by the prophets. Jesus is going to make that point. You may have imagined this or that. But the reality is that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory. Jesus makes that point, verse 26. In his article, Avoidance Issues and the Unavoiding God, Scott Jones observes this about the plan that's unfolding here. The cross was not some sort of haphazard plan B in response to the absurd waywardness of our first parents. It was plan A all along. In the words of P.T. Foresight, there's a cross at the heart of God. Now, I imagine as I was reading through these articles and thinking about this passage, at this point, I remember hearing Bob Goff. Do you know Bob Goff? He's coming to town, actually, in a couple of weeks. He's going to be doing uh, something with Hospitality House. Um, but I remember hearing Bob Goff on a couple of occasions. And at this point, this is where Bob would go, Come on, guys! <laughs> and he says it like in that voice. And then he goes on to ra- or, you know, or throw out a whole list of things that we should have gotten and understood uh, from the beginning. And here's Jesus with his own, Come on, guys! At us. So Jesus' rebuke isn't a dismissal of these two persons. He doesn't dismiss them. He's not trying to get something right just to prove a point. He's trying to get them to a place where they're absolutely clear that Jesus stays with them and addresses the deficiency in their understanding. He's walking with them in this. And he's calling into these places. He's not just simply looking to hurt people where we oftentimes make the mistake of trying to be right. In that way to win an argument jesus is not winning an argument here jesus is trying to win friends together as family to bring people to a greater truth so instead this is a serious correction of their misconception of who jesus is jesus wants them to get this right and what he has come to do it's important that we hear what that purpose was and we can see this unfold as jesus will go on to instruct them in verse 27 Covering ground he has done before. He talks about this stuff in Luke chapter 18. And he'll do it again after our text in verses 44 through 47. Jesus wants them to be on board. He wants us to be on board as well, to get with the program. But even more than that, because those oftentimes sound very dismissive, Jesus wants us to receive the benefit of all this. Jesus wants to teach us so that we might be heirs. Of course, Jesus' teaching is not something that we haven't heard before, right? It's a quality that's exhibited throughout his ministry. They call him rabbi. We heard that already in a resurrection account, right? Jesus has already been seen as a teacher. And here he is, the resurrected Jesus, still teaching, still teaching his people, drawing them together that they might know that benefit. And the expectation here, of course, is that this first generation, these folks that we read about in the Gospels, that they'll then pass this witness down to future generations. I think that's why Luke has it included here. So the second generation, the third generation, the 21st generation us can have confidence in the witness that's being handed down to us from these folks who experienced it for the first time. 
course, if you want to see how that plays out, if you thought, I don't know, Jimmy, that, that seems a little bit, I don't know where you're getting that from. Well, read the intro to 1 John, for instance. What we've seen and what we've heard, that's what they're reporting. But not only does Jesus teach, Jesus also directs these earliest followers to a repository of wisdom, to inspiration, and even more. Jesus points his followers to the oldest sections of Scripture, the Hebrew Scripture, what we oftentimes call the Old Testament. And this, of course, isn't lost on early Christian writers. Think of the Apostle Paul, who will write in 2 Timothy chapter 3. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Now from childhood you have known sacred writings that are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the person of God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. Well, what is this sacred scripture that Paul has in mind? Certainly talking about the Hebrew Bible, the one that Timothy would have read and understood from a young age. Of course, you hear all this and you have the scripture being unpacked by Jesus. You have Jesus talking about himself and what he's up to. But this picture doesn't come into complete focus until something happens. And it involves bread. That Jesus takes it, he blesses, he breaks and gives the bread in verse 30. Something happens in that. Something they have seen before. Something that they are brought to remembry of. Of course, in Luke 9, this same order, this taking, this blessing, this breaking and giving is laid out when the five loaves and the two fish are fed to thousands. And at Luke 22, this order of take, bless, break, and give, the exact same order happens at the Last Supper. And here it happens again with the resurrected Jesus with those folks on the way to Emmaus. By now it is a familiar pattern, one that pulls you back, both in our time and in theirs as well, to memory, to story, to covenant. It's a reminder, a living reminder. It's the power of sacrament for communicating a great truth. This something would trigger familiarity. And it's clear in verse 31 that the something gives way to knowing the someone, knowing Jesus. So it's no wonder when we come on Sundays to the table that we come with anticipation each week. That our eyes too might be opened to see Christ in a new way. We anticipate it because here in our text we see God doing just that in the person of Jesus Christ. I don't oftentimes quote Matthew Henry, but when I do, I love it. Matthew Henry on this note. I was actually told that when I was an undergrad, don't use Matthew Henry. Don't use him. I can't help myself. Those who seek Christ shall find him. He will manifest himself to those that inquire after him and give knowledge to those who use the helps for knowledge which they have. I love my boy Henry. This past week I posted a reading on Facebook from the late Lutheran theologian Bob Geertz, who wrote a vivid and imaginative first-person account of the Maya story. Here's just a taste of what Geertz wrote. You'll have to go out to Facebook and see the, uh, the rest of it. But he writes, The sun had begun to sink before them. The colors on the mountain became deeper, and the odor of the ground became stronger. 
While they walked, the past began to shine with new splendor, and their eyes were amazed to see the ways of God with a clarity they had never before known. They saw that the Lord's chosen servant would be rejected and betrayed by men, so despised that his own would regard him as nothing and be offended for his sake. But he bore their infirmities, and he took their pain upon himself. Yes, it was written that he would be wounded for their transgressions and would be beaten for the sake of their misdeeds. Like a gray strand of pearls sewn into the blue velvet hem of the shadow, the long stone wall made its way over the back of the mountain. The sun was so low that it strewed splashes of gold through the grass. It was completely still, and one heard the hum of the swallows that chased by. They saw everything with dreamy eyes. The veil had been lifted, and they had seen the image of God's own Messiah, the King who came to his people, humble and riding on a donkey to bear the sins of many and to intercede for the transgressors. He who had been tormented, though he humbled himself and opened not his mouth, but stood quietly when he was reviled. They saw. The bread's broken. They saw. They saw everything, and I love that line, with dreamy eyes. The veil had been lifted, and they had seen the image of God's own Messiah, a stranger no more. Jesus had shown up. I grew up in a tradition that oftentimes we would see people chasing an experience. We would have revival services and we'd bring guest speakers would come into town. And these meetings would be over the top. People would stay for hours upon hours upon hours. The service on Sunday morning wasn't two and a half hours. Somebody came up short. And they would repeat that Sunday night and then each night of the week in these special seasons. But one of the things we see here in the Emmaus story is, is that we don't always know when Jesus will show up. Jesus is present to us, but we don't always know in this special kind of way how Jesus is going to show up. And we may not even know how Jesus will show up. The scripture talks about people entertaining angels unaware. We don't even know all the times how, and so we can't necessarily manufacture that for our lives. But what we do know is this. Jesus does show up and shows up at times where Christ is needed. And we also know that who shows up and what the one who shows up is all about. And it's God's grace extended to us. It's God's love given to us. It's God's patience shown to us. It's God's own instruction teaching to bring us back to those places. But it happens in unexpected ways. There's an old story that dates back to May 24, 1738 that many of you may be familiar with. You may not be familiar with that particular date, but you do know the name John Wesley, right? Do we know John Wesley? If you don't know John Wesley, maybe you know a Methodist, and that's close enough. But that morning, on May 24, 1738, John Wesley was reading 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. Thus he has given us through these things his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may escape from the corruption that is in the world, because of lust and may become participants of the divine nature. Good morning, John Wesley. He read that and he was thinking about it. And as the story goes, that evening Wesley would attend a meeting at Aldersgate. And the way the story tells, he reluctantly attended. Have you ever reluctantly gone to church? So did John Wesley. <laughs> he reluctantly went. A meeting where someone was reading, get this. 
If you thought it was hard to sit and listen for an hour, somebody was reading from the introduction to Luther's preface to the Epistle to Romans. Oh, wow, now we know why he's reluctant. (laughs) But then at around 8.45 p.m., something happens. And this is how Wesley describes it. While he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. If Jesus is alive, that's possible. That's more than possible. That Jesus shows up in our lives even when we're reluctant to show up ourselves. That Jesus meets us. We become the reluctant convert because Jesus loves us as the song goes, but even more so as the scripture bears witness to. And so as we consider those folks who are journeying to Emmaus, who are encountered by the risen Christ and their own hearts, their own hearts are set ablaze in the presence of Jesus Christ. That's my prayer for us as well, that we too might experience the very living and very real presence of Jesus Christ, that he might open our eyes So that might be our prayer as well. God, open our eyes. Help us to see. Help us to see Christ at work in my life. Christ calling me to a new kind of life. That I might live in resurrection and not continue to mingle amongst the dead. Maybe so for our lives today and this day and every day of our life. Amen. Friends, let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your great love for us. And as we traverse through this life, we oftentimes find ourselves in places where our wandering feels aimless, feels purposeless. We find ourselves in seasons of sadness, tormented by memory, haunted by the past. So Lord, to a a people who are, in other words, are living a very real kind of life. We pray, Lord, that you'd help, help us. Like the song saying earlier, open the eyes of our heart, Lord. We want to see you. We want to see you high and lifted up. Lord, help your people this day. Lord, as we pray to come to the table, we once more offer our lives to you as a thanksgiving offering of gratitude for your grace and your love. We pray, Lord, that you would use us for your glory, for your kingdom, that you would transform us even on this day, here and now. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, there's a number of responses that we have to uh, God's word, God's voice speaking to us in Jesus Christ through the power of the Spirit. And one of those is a grateful response of our lives. And so we give of our tithes and offerings, which is money, but we also offer ourselves and ask, how might you use us, Lord? We offer ourselves, we, we know you're calling us to a new kind of life, a life of generosity, as you have exemplified generosity. And so that's the question for each one of us to ask this morning. The next few minutes as we prepare to come to the table, we come to that which has been freely given to us, which is extended to us by the host. How could we act any differently in the way that we give of ourselves, to give freely to the one who is generously given to us? Maybe so for each one of us.